0: get 20% off plus free shipping and two free gifts when you purchase the new Perfect Package 3.0 kit with promo code Gators. Head over to manscape.com and purchase yours today. Gators breakdown. The Gators fan podcast because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore S E C in a jam-packed episode this week. We'll start off with joining me as always is Will Miles, co-host Will Miles. Will, what's going on?
1: <laughs> Nothing, man. Just like everybody else in the country. I'm I'm coming to you live from my basement and uh you know everybody else is in their basement, listening to this thing.
0: Yeah, um so Kind of weird this week, you know, your, your schedule's been shuffled. Now, uh, you joining us right before you have to go to work on a 8.30 on a Tuesday night.
1: Hey, man, two more days left, two more days left, and then I'm back <laughs> to being a day walker. So uh, I'm running the Bill Sykes schedule right now, but uh, eventually <laughs> I'll be back to days, and, and things will be a little bit more normal. But, you know, it, thankful to have a job. There's certainly people out there who are less fortunate, and so hopefully we can sort of take their mind off of it and talk a little bit of football.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, special guest this week, uh, as I said, and uh, for 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 this week, the co-founder of Sports Source Analytics, Stephen Prather. Uh, he, we brought him on because last week he released an in-depth look at Dan Mullen's offense in his last four years at Mississippi State, and you know, we'll talk about that and and what that means for Florida as well. But uh, Stephen, welcome.
2: Thank hey, you. Yeah, I apologize. I'm the work at home day. I've got four girls, and they decided to come in here. So if you hear my little four-year-old. That's what she's
1: doing here. So, <laughs> we've all had that happen to us at least once this week, buddy. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, no question. No question. Yeah. Uh, Come on. I really appreciate
0: it. No problem, no problem. Yeah, really, really in depth look there at what Dan Mullen did in his last four years at Mississippi State, uh, how it translates to Florida. You know, we'll get, get into that discussion uh, discussion a little bit. But before we get started, Stephen, like, uh, what uh, what what is Sports source Analytics? Why'd you start yeah. it, and uh, how'd you get into it?
2: Yeah, this is actually it was a fake business plan that I put together when I was getting my MBA at Vanderbilt. It um, was the communications course, and it, basically they were trying to show you how to put together a business plan. And I literally put together a fake business plan, and I've always been a huge um, a huge fan of um, of analytics, and partly through my my baseball background, um, It just always been in love with numbers, and um, so I put together a business plan that wanted to really focus on working with athletic directors and trying to evaluate coaches. But, but instead of doing it just based on how well a guy did an interview or, you know, who you know, or who you like, I wanted to try to bring data to it. So kind of put that together. That was back in 2007. Um, did not even think about it, actually 2005. I think about it, yeah. I did put it, did it again. Um, got my MBA, got out of business school, started working in the commercial real estate world. And, and then 2008 hit and I found myself in need of some auxiliary income of a commission sales broker. And my brother, who was also doing real estate in Atlanta kind of called me up and said, remember that business plan you put together? We long story short. We were able to start kind of putting it together and, um, really launched it really back was book in 2011. I think it's we officially launched. And, um, They've kind of slowly but surely found our way in, in the, in have you know, really pretty highly involved in the college football landscape. We work with about 30 different FPS programs throughout the country. We've gotten involved in 45 head coaching searches in the last six, seven years. Um, we're the official data provider for the uh, selection committee. Uh, we, we do a lot of work with conferences. We sell data. So we kind of got our hands in a, in a wide variety of, of areas in the college football world.
0: Awesome. Pretty good. Uh, feather in your cat when you say you, you you provide the committee uh some behind the scenes stats
2: yeah we've been so we, we just re-upped that contract which is fantastic we've uh we've been there since day one with them and that's been a really fun 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 thing we've done it's been really neat kind of work with the committee and building the platforms they use and kind of helping them dig into the data has been a lot of fun
0: Anything you can share that you know not necessarily you know not too much to, to, to get yeah. you or the committee in trouble, but anything interest, interesting along the lines of uh, the college football playoff selection committee and how they use your data, or just uh, some you know random story that uh, our, our listeners might find interesting.
2: Oh, uh, yeah! tell you, just, you know, it's, it, the, the fun part has been interacting with a lot of the different committee members. You know, some of the backgrounds from not still say work. You know, being able to interact with Tandy Rice and I mean, her her knowledge and curiosity was honestly fascinating. I mean, she had one of the most active and curious minds we've I've come across, and it was really fun kind of just seeing her view of football and how she wanted to dig in the data. And, yeah, honestly, you know, people ask all the time, and you know, we're obviously not in the room when they're when they're doing their stuff with the with the with the with the data, but. Yeah, but it's been fun, kind of in the meetings we have with them. I mean, it's a they, they dig, they dive, they dig really deep into what they're looking at. I mean, I know you're never going to please everyone in the decisions you know that they come down to you, but I always tell anyone that asks, they are. It is a very thorough process, and there is virtually nothing they are not looking at in some form or fashion.
0: So we don't need the BCS to determine the four teams. <laughs> no, 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 we do not. <laughs> will anything uh wide scoping you want to hit first before we get into the the nuts and bolts of uh, his piece?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the the biggest question I would have is um how do we get Clemson knocked out of this with the uh <laughs> with the ACC? Can we, can we help you uh, rig the numbers so people start treating them more like the Big Twelve?
2: I know, I know. Seriously, it's yeah, it's, it's Clemson's been fascinating to um to, to watch. Yeah, they're one. Um, you know that I remember when 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 Dabo first got hired, you're kind of like, "What in the world? Who's this guy?" And um, you know, it's really pretty incredible what what he's kind of built in that program they built. And look, like any else, I mean, they've certainly benefited from. Yeah, you know, the ACC. There are certain years it's it's had good years, and it's it's a lot more up and down than certainly a conference like the SEC is year in year out. But it's really impressive what they've built and what he's done there. You know, and and. I wouldn't have guessed it when he first got hired. If he had told me they'd be where they were, you know, a decade later, I would have said I wouldn't have guessed it. But, I mean, he's really turned into a phenomenal head coach.
0: All right, all right. We'll get into uh, what makes Dan Mullins' offense so uh, successful uh, coming up here. But before we do, remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on news 4 jaxcom slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes there, as well as News 4 Jack's coverage of the Gators and Jacksonville Sports uh, if you miss all our past episodes, you can catch them there at news 4 slash Gators Breakdown. Also follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So, Stephen, uh, let's get started uh, with highlights of, uh, of your deep dive title. You know, control the line, control the ball, control the game. Uh, you went back to Mullen's 2014 through 2017 seasons at Mississippi State. You know, why was Mullen chosen for this and, and why that time frame?
2: Yeah. You know, so, so obviously we've got more time on our hands than, than usual right now. And you know, we like to do this in the off season. Anyways, we want to kind of really dig into some, in, in you know, some of the different programs that we, that we study and, you know, look at offensive minds and defensive minds. So I've been really focused on, on offenses and Mullen's actually always kind of fascinated me from a standpoint of his offense. And what always stuck out to me was, you know, certainly in that last parties at Mississippi state was, the success he was having, you know, without having necessarily, you know, quote unquote elite talent, you know, certainly relative to a lot of the SEC. And so, you know, I wanted to dig into him. And I think, you know, I think even going back to the you know, early Utah days of Meyer to, um, to to then obviously, you know, to, to Florida then becoming the, you know, the head coach, he's just been a coach I've always had my eye on. And I've always kind of wanted to dig a little bit deeper into what he does offensively. And um, and so that's what that's what I did. And so I wanted to kind of look at you know what really what's his offense about? You know what what how is it designed? And um, I picked the last four years in Mississippi State. You know partly because I think it was, you know, at that point that was as fully his program as it could ever be. There was every single player in that program had been you know his panpicked. That it was his culture. It was his offense. Um, and, and so that's the reason, like, I, I really focused there. I didn't really want to look at the Florida years yet, just because I don't think he's quite there yet. You know, it's still, it's still not his full roster. It's still, you know, you still got to get your, your culture fully ingrained. So I wanted to really focus on those last, you know, four years, I thought was the best indication of, of, of Dan Mullen's offense.
0: Well, before you jump in here, because he, because he, because Stephen mentioned it. So I, I want to get this part in, um, Steven, I don't know if you saw, but Mullen responded to one tidbit <laughs> <laughs> of, of your piece here. So uh quote from your piece was, in his last four years as the head coach at Mississippi State, Dan Mullen's offense was the eighth highest rated offense in all of college football uh, by our proprietary offensive rating system. Uh, during this time, Coach Mullen's team had the tenth highest team roster talent rating, uh, the average twenty-four-seven sport composite uh, player rating uh, for rated players on the roster for the years in question. There, twenty fourteen to through twenty seventeen. Uh, so Mullen, uh, and then you know that was the, that was in the SEC uh, there. Yeah. So right. Mullen responded on Twitter with, "Quote: Did I read this right? Eighth best offense in the nation with what was rated the tenth best players in the SEC." I think we had some good players in the court. So, you know, Will, Will and I, we, you know, we have the recruiting debate all the time here on Gators Breakdown with, with a lot of listeners and, and, and followers out there about how much, you know, stars matter and in the totality of teams competing for national championships. You know, there's too much evidence uh, the other you know of the other way to suggest that you, you can just go out there and win titles, you know, without top tier prospects. Yeah. The, the data's not there. Uh, but, you know, this does show that Mullen is one of if not the best of getting the maximum amount of, out of his players. He's
2: he's a phenomenal player developer, you know, which I think is is vital when you look at certain guys. And it's the reason he did so well at Mississippi State because you know, you go to place some Mississippi State and you're not gonna go out recruit Bama in LSU in Georgia in Florida. You're not gonna do it. You know, that doesn't mean you can't get good players. And they did get, I mean, they were still generally top twenty-five, top thirty, you know, nationally, but when you're when you're in the SEC and you're particularly in the SEC West. You know, you could have a really good recruiting class and still be six best in your side of the conference. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's it's so I think Mullen has proven throughout his career that he's a he's a phenomenal um, player developer. I think he evaluates talent well too. Um, I, I think he evaluates it differently. I think he knows the type of players that he's looking for. I mean, I mean the best example that's Nick Fitzgerald. I mean, that guy was almost had no other actual offers. You know, was running uh, an option offense at a small school in Georgia. You know, no one heard of him. He turns in the guy. You know, put up you know some Heisman level numbers. Um, you know, d- during his time with with Dan Mullen. And look and look what happened to him after Mullen left. But that, that's right.
1: Well, So I'm actually one of the things that really jumped out in the uh, in the document that you released was the fact that Mullen seemed to adjust when he went from Prescott to Fitzgerald. So yeah. you know you mentioned that he was that he was typically an 11 personnel under Prescott, so one tight end, one running back three wide, and then switched to 12, bringing in an extra tight end when they went to Fitzgerald. Um, Is that something you consistently saw over the four years that he was adjusting to his personnel? Because that's been one of the things I think while he's been at Florida that's really impressed me is last year with the wide receivers being the strength, they went four wide a lot and often even split LaMichael P. Ryan out and sort of had a five wide set oftentimes as well. And that's not necessarily something you think about um, yeah. when you think about Dan Mullen's offense, but it seems like he's adjusting to his players um, rather than necessarily saying, this is my offense. I'm going to recruit people who fit my specific offense.
2: Yeah. I think he's got a history of that. You know, I, I, I think, I think Mullen's arguably that one of the great jobs I've seen done with that was with Chris Leak, you know, and, 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 you know, how do you, how do you still work? Even if a guy may not be your ideal guy for your system, or the ideal players, how do you still work around that? You know, can you be effective in your offense? And I think mean, Mullen's got a really good history of doing that. And, um, I mean, just from from, ev- from everywhere he's been, he's done that. And and so I do think he's he's got a – I think he's got a personality on offense more than, you know, an exact playbook or that. I mean, he has a certain style he wants to play, but then he's not going to be so wed to that. That he's not gonna change things and do things a little bit different pers- you know, personnel wise based on who he's got. And I think what he does a great job too is understanding who are the guys that can make plays. Yeah, you know, at some point, you know, he wants to get the ball in playmakers' hands. And I think he's got a good history of doing that as well.
0: Stephen, was there was there one piece of this throughout the 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 history and the look of this that you didn't expect to find that you found that surprised you?
2: You know, I don't think I realized just how an elite of a of a first down team they were. Um, you know, it's, you know, people forget, you know, 40 plus percent of football is first and 10. And so, you know, if it, ultimately it's hard to be an elite offense if you're not an elite first down offense. And so I, I don't think I realized just how elite of a first down team they were. And um, and then even just looking at, you know, they're kind of we kind of have an offensive line efficiency ranking that we look at. You know, we look at tackles for loss, sacks, we look at you know, percent of runs that, that go for four plus yards, and we look at kind of short yardage run situations on third and fourth down, and, and they were right up there with the best in the country on that front. So I you know, it's like you know, I think I always do their own You know, he wanted to have a physical way they played. But I don't think I think that surprised me a little bit on just how elite they were in some of those categories.
1: So I guess the one thing that's really sort of been the uh, the thing that people have criticized Mullen about is his is his record against ranked opponents. He was 0 and 9 against Alabama. He's now 3 and 8 versus LSU, 0 and 2 versus Georgia. And I think, you know. Year one and year two, Florida played really, really well in those two years under Mullen. But now we're getting to the point where they're going to have to start beating Georgia for, for seasons okay. to be deemed successful. Are there things about his offense that even with a team that maybe doesn't have quite the talent level of a Georgia or an Alabama that you think he can do to exploit those teams? Um, you know, especially with a senior quarterback in Kyle Trask coming back, where maybe there are some things that he does that would give Florida an advantage.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to get, like, Mullen got criticized for that a lot, you know, if you looked at his record in Mississippi State. But, I mean, the reality was, you know, when you look, if you go look at Alabama and LSU's, those teams' record during that time, I mean, they weren't very losing almost anybody, period. Um, so, you know, I've always felt that was an unfair criticism of him. And I think as far, I think this third year is going to be a key year on that front. I think what, what Mullen's offense, I think what makes it unique is – I guess another thing that did surprise me was just how balanced they were while being efficient in that balance. I mean, it's really just to have balance and you're not good. You know, you can certainly be balanced, but I think I was a little bit surprised at how well he was able and how balanced he was in a wide variety of down and distance scenarios and being able to, you know, still run the ball effectively on second long still being able to run the ball effectively on third and off, still being able to pass early, still be able to do things. So I think that surprised me. I think that's – I think as he continues to build his culture, and I think he gets the type of players that he wants and can develop at Florida. I think he's going to give those teams, you know, a lot of trouble. You saw it a little bit last year. I mean, I think it was the LSU game. I mean, it's – I mean, you're you're seeing it. He does a lot of things offensively. I think what he does with how balanced he is and how effective he can use the quarterback – um, he 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 makes the defense not be able. They've got to play a lot more base, and they've got to simplify things a lot more than I think they would against other opponents.
0: Stephen, the, the crux of the piece, and it was in the title as well. You know, was Mullen likes to control the ball. Yeah. Uh, you know, and one metric out there that a lot of people use to measure that is time of possession. And if you look at that, that necessarily didn't seem to be the case. Yeah. Dak, Dak Prescott in twenty fourteen. Uh, you know, Mississippi State was 59th in time of possession, 2015th, all the way down to 121st in the country. But you look, you had an electric quarterback who can move the ball. You know, they probably, you know, they, they were scoring. 2016, the fixed trail takes over, and you expect the offense to start running more, controlling time of possession. But in that season, the Bulldogs ranked 87th in, in time of possession. The one year that metric really showed up was Mullins last year, 2018, time of possession ranked eighth in the country. Yeah. Stephen, what I think your work showed was there's multiple ways to control yeah, a game, right. and, and some that may mean more than time of possession.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, time of possession. I mean, look, it's if you if you look at like a correlation, if you run a correlation analysis on time of possession, it's essentially meaningless, you know, at, at the aggregate level. But but you're definitely right. The way the way Mullen the way Mullen controls the game from the data we looked at was, you know, he controls it through first down. Um, you know, when, when you're as efficient as he is on first down, um, y- you control the game that way. You know, so partly when you're a good first down team, typically that leads to being a good third down team. And that's another way you control the games. you stay on the field. And then beyond that, you know, just being a very efficient, being a quality red zone team, you know, those are different ways that, that we think you can control the game without necessarily eating clock. I mean, eating clock is a way you can do that, and I think you saw that in 2018. They did a it more of that. I don't think Mullen necessarily is, is, is trying to control the game with the clock. I think he's trying to control the game with controlling the line of scrimmage, with being you know, an extremely physical team that can run the ball in a variety of scenarios, that being a team that can use the quarterback in a variety of ways, you know, being a team that can still have a very effective passing game as well. So I mean, I think you're exactly right. He, his his control of the game is not necessarily through time of possession, but through efficiency.
1: So in order to get that control, you really have to have the offensive line to be able to do that. And certainly Florida last year struggled pretty mightily on the offensive line. Is there something in particular that you notice when you look at Mississippi State that the type of offensive linemen that they bring in or something that allows them to be as successful on first down as they are? Because, I mean, obviously, if the defense knows you're trying to get ahead of the chains on first down, they can do certain things about it. So yeah. what is it about the guys that they recruit and that they put up there up front that Florida is going to have to build in order? to to get that advantage because last year they certainly didn't have it.
2: Yeah, I mean I think I think some of that is is time to, you know, with I mean it's we we love for things to want to turn around in one year. Um I I think I think this coming up year and obviously we kind of we're getting thrown off a little bit with not having spring ball and some of that, but I think I think some of it's just development. I don't think there's any kind of magic of of who the players they got from a standpoint of offensive lineman with the state. I think it was just, you know, getting them in the culture, getting them in the system, and over time. You know, I mean, at some point, too, you know, that that does take time to develop that sideline. And there's a lot of luck that comes in offensive line and just getting them not having injuries and different things like that. So I think it's just you're going to see it develop over time. Um, I mean, Mullen, that's a major part of their identity on on how he wants to play, and, and he's going to make that a priority. And, and I, I do think you'll continue to see major development in, in these next coming years with, with with Mullen, especially on the offensive
0: line. it would be hard to, to look at you know twenty fourteen through twenty seventeen or twenty yeah, fourteen through twenty seventeen and not think about what we have seen in the last couple of years and and the success that Dan Mullen's had, you know, early on. Surprising you in any way with Felipe Franks, who a lot of people didn't think much of after the 2017 season, his first season where he's starting, and, and go win 10 games, and Kyle Trask comes in. For injured Felipe Franks against Kentucky and leads a comeback and goes on to win eleven games uh, for the Gators in the season. You know anything? You know surprised you in the out of these first two years when you went back and and, and you know really you dove deep into these twenty fourteen through twenty
2: seventeen. You know, I think you know, one of the, I said I think I think Mullen arguably is one of the best quarterback guys in in college football. You know if you go back to his time coaching you know coaching Alex Smith at Utah to then you know just I mean. He, he's always been very, very good at getting quarterbacks to play at a high level. And I think that's one of the single keys to being a great and consistently great offensive mind. I mean, the simple reality is if the quarterback doesn't play at a high level, not much else matters. And one thing, remember two, actually, the guy, actually, the, the offensive mind that Mullen reminds me the most of is Bill Snyder. Um, you know, people, a lot of people forget Meyer – will tell you, and I'm sure Mullen will say the same thing. A lot of their early spread principles that they started to install at Utah came from Bill Snyder. You know, Snyder was on the forefront of really utilizing the quarterback. You know, when you look at Michael Bishop and what he did there, and even going and then when even when Snyder came back his second stint, you know, what he did at the quarterback position with Colin Klein and with the different guys he had there. I think Mullen reminds me a lot of that where he is really able to utilize the quarterback in very, very unique ways as far as, the, as how deadly they can be on the ground with their feet and, and in the run game, but also still being very efficient and effective in the passing game. You know, the, the, this isn't an option team where you got quarterbacks running, but they can't throw the ball 10 yards down the field. I mean, I mean, he's got a sophisticated passing game that's designed very well, that attacks all parts of the field. You know, he's got a great short passing game. He can stretch the field. And then you throw in the quarterback being a run threat in virtually every scenario, and you can understand why he's so hard to prepare for defensively.
1: Yeah, So I guess when it comes down to it, brass tacks, if Florida's in a close game with Georgia next year, you know, third and one, fourth and one, and everything's on the line. Where do you think Mullen's going with the ball, Um, given that he's probably going to have Kyle Trask as his quarterback? And this is sort of the the argument that's going on in Gator Nation is, do they want a running quarterback who maybe doesn't have the experience, or do they want the guy who showed he could throw the ball last year? So um, I'm curious as to what you think Mullen would go to in one of those critical situations next year when he's
2: got Trask. Yeah, and that's a great question. And, I mean, it's – I mean, if you look at the history of Mullen, like I said, really going back to, you know, the Alex Smith days in Utah, I mean, he ultimately would love to have a quarterback. And every, I mean, every, if you get a third down threat, a quarterback, and you saw some of the numbers in that breakdown, I mean, his quarterbacks were lethal on third down as far as, you know, and that. so, I mean, it's, that's why I still say one reason I'm still not quite ready to break down Mullen at 40 yet. Is I still think he's gotta get I mean, he'd like a quarterback that I think could be more of a weapon on those short third yardage. But I mean, yeah, I think I think Kyle Trask might I mean Trask is a better athlete than people give him credit for. And I and I mean certainly not a Dak Prescott or Nick Fitzgerald, but you know, I think as he develops in Mullen's offense and it gets more confident in it, I think you may see him be a little bit more of a threat. I think Dan may be able to really find some creative ways to utilize him in the third short running game, you
0: know, this this next season. Uh, Steven, so how, how would you kind of go on bouncing off of Will's point and we'll kind of, you know, stretch out a little bit here. How would you handicap Florida, Georgia, next year, SEC East, and, and you know, Jamie Newman coming in for Georgia, and there's a lot of hype around him uh, coming from Wake Forest and the ACC and maybe showing a potential there that a lot of people are – Maybe, maybe even thinking Georgia can take the next step in offense uh, with him at the helm. Uh, how would you handicap the SEC East right now?
2: I, I'm, I, I'm very, very, very bullish on on the Gators. Um, is that partly because I just I'm a big believer in Mullen. I think he's, you know, I've I've known coaches that have that have worked for him, and I, I think Dan's one of the smartest coaches in college football. I think as, as he continues to build his culture, as he's got a returning starter quarterback and has some other weapons, I think Georgia is going to be the most, one of the more fascinating teams for me this year just because, you know, they lost so much. You know, you got lose your offensive line coach, who's, you know, one of the best in the country. You've lost almost your entire offensive line. Um, and, and and so, you know, you've got a brand-new quarterback coming in. you got a brand-new offensive coordinator coming in. And it's going to be really fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, they could end up being, I mean, they have loads of talent and, and Kirby's a great coach and they're going to play good defense and they're going to do certain things well. But what's going to be interesting is this is going to be a totally new way of Kirby playing. I mean, Kirby's wanted to play a lot more, you know, like the, the little bit, some of the older Saban teams, you know, back in, you know, 9 10 11 and then he's bringing in a coach that's going to try to be a little bit more wide open with how they do things and it's going to be interesting to see you know how that affects the way kobe kirby coaches how does it affect the defense uh how does it do things so I, as i said i'm extremely bullish on on the gators you know that's coming up here
0: well you got anything
1: no it's been great i appreciate hmm. the time and certainly an interesting insight in florida's offense
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve please. Steve one more thing with the college football yeah. playoff. Um do they they do they look at your data different from their first ranking all the way till they pick the final 4 teams? Is it something they look at at the end of the season Are they breaking it down as the season goes on? Is it's are they are they making more of a ultimate decision with your with your information that you're giving them more so than playing along with it during the season?
2: That's a good question. You I mean it said there's there's a lot of those Um, Yeah, I mean, I I say this, the the, one of the things I think is beneficial about the committee is that it's a it's a wide variety of personalities and it's a wide variety of people, you know, wide variety of backgrounds. You've got, you know, coaches on there that are probably relying a lot more on their breakdown of film. And then you've got some over there that are probably really leaning on, you know, the data is what they look at. And I do think as the season goes on, I think you start to kind of realize in a given season, you know, what, what started to matter more, you know, how's the season playing out, you know, what teams are starting to separate themselves, you know, week five, week six, week seven. And I do think they probably start to break things down differently and, and really see what matters. And it's, it, it is interesting too, because every year is pretty different too. I mean, you look at, you look at this year, we kind of do a breakdown every year uh, at the end of the season and kind of look at the final four teams, and and you know kind of dig into what, okay where were these teams elite? You know, did they share something in common? This year was extremely unique in how elite every offense was. I mean, these were arguably the top four offenses in college football were the teams that made the made the playoff, um, and I think this LSU team was one of the worst one of the worst defenses to win a national championship since you know, the Auburn 2010 team. So I think I do think to answer your question, I do think with each year you're going to have as the season plays out, you kind of start to see the DNA of the season. I do think they start to kind of change the way they look at things a little bit.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, Stephen, definitely, we'll have to get you on again. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, we're talking about Florida being, you know, in a top four next That's time right. we're talking, and we, we can kind of break down the the data there of uh, what yeah. made Florida a college football playoff team. But uh, uh, anything else uh, you, you want to share out there about the about your services?
2: No, no. It's like I said, we you know, appreciate you guys having me on. I think I'll share a little bit before we start the podcast. I've I've uh, I've been to probably a dozen games down the swamp. I think it's one of the, the best uh, places to watch a football game. Um, I, it was a huge Spurrier guy. And then, yes, you know, remained a huge fan of Meyer and I'm a huge Mullen fan. So, um, love, love to see the Gators in good hands with coach Mullen and excited to see what they can, what they can do this year.
0: Awesome. Awesome. That's Stephen Steven Prather from the co-founder of sports source analytics. Uh, Steven, man, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. Let's take a second to thank our sponsor manscaped with free agency period done and no live sports on TV there is an increasing excitement around this year's NFL draft. The NFL draft is all about new beginnings and our sponsors at Manscaped are here to give you a new beginning. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below the waist grooming and hygiene. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their perfect package 3.0 essentials kit. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with new and improved lawnmower 3.0, waterproof cordless body trimmer, and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. This third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents, nick-free shaving thanks to manscaped advanced skin safe technology. And of course, let's not forget about the crop preserver, an anti-chafing body odor and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits, right? So why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? When you purchase the new Perfect Package 3.0 kit at manscaped.com, you get the biggest bang for your buck. Subscribers get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer, delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. For a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag at $39 value and the patent high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped boxer briefs. This is the perfect package for your perfect package. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code Gators at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code Gators at Manscaped.com. Uh, Something else I wanted to to put in here, Will, is something I I wanted to look up today. And the crux of his article, as I said, it was a lot. It was a lot about controlling the game uh, from different aspects here. Uh, And so I went back and looked at Mullen twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, and twenty nineteen. This past season, plays per drive. Old Miss led the conference with five point eight four plays per drive. Alabama was fifth with five point seven five. Florida was tied with Georgia for sixth at 5.69 uh, plays per drive. So with LSU right behind those two uh, with 5.6. So you know, the better teams in the SEC all grouped together right there. Uh, you know, those, those were offenses that could stay on the field, uh, but balanced enough to get some quick scores too. In 2018, the Gators were seventh in the SEC in plays per drive uh in uh with 5.62 so only a hair below compared uh, to 2019
1: yeah i mean i think that's uh that's been one of the things that's been pretty consistent about Mullen is his ability to at least keep the games close um against teams that are more talented particularly last year I mean, you know the loss to georgia was 7 the loss to lsu was was closer than the 14 that was on the board. And, and you know, even when the team struggled, they've been able to sort of stay in the game and then been able to come back and win it in the end. I think the interesting thing is how he's done it, right? So in 2018, they threw the ball 39% of the time and rushed at 61%. And then Mullen adjusted with Trask and the offensive line last year, and they threw the ball 56% of the time. So they threw it 17% more often last year than they did in 2018. And I think that's reflective of, a lot of what Steven was talking about in terms of Mullen being able to adjust to his personnel. So, you know, you got Dak Prescott, you're in 11 personnel. You bring in Nick, Nick Fitzgerald, you're in 12. You've got Felipe Franks. There was a lot of... Um, a lot of read option and a lot of things where, um, you know, Seante Lewis was on the field because he was a blocking tight end. Well, now you get Kyle Pitts on the field and he's much more of a catcher and they go – or much more of a receiver. And all of a sudden they're going four wide and then splitting out the tight end in the slot. So, um, you know, I, I think that's encouraging for Gator fans who hear us rail over and over and over again about recruiting and and really, that the coach is able to make up some of that difference because of the, the ability to acqu- or to manipulate his offense to fit his uh, personnel.
0: Yeah, that goes to some of the, the the next metric. I found another aspect of controlling a game y- yards per drive, not just plays, but yards per drive. You know, how much are you making that opposing defense on the field run? Uh, Alabama led the way with forty six point oh six yards per drive. LSU was second with forty five point twenty four. Florida was third. Uh, But about eight yards less than LSU. (laughs) (laughs) So Alabama and LSU definitely cream of the crop there uh, with yards per drive. But Florida was third uh, with uh, 37.13 yards per drive. In 2018, seventh in the SEC at 34.77 Um, yards per drive so the Gators averaged three more yards per drive in 2019 and 2018 Will and I kind of going back to your point that you just hit on it's not a huge surprise with the bulk of the offense coming through the air in 2019 you throw the ball you're going to get more yards
1: Yeah. And I mean, I I think the other thing is, is that you got to measure explosive plays and, and Trask was able to generate far more explosive plays through the air than Frank's was the year before. And when you look at LSU, I mean, that's really where LSU started to make their hay is being able to hit explosive plays. So Florida last year, 11.8% of their throws were explosive plays. Um, You know, you look at somebody like LSU, they were at 15 percent. Alabama was at 19.2 percent. So, you know, I would say the one weakness to the control the ball strategy is if you're not hitting explosive plays, Mm -hmm. then you end up with drives like the drive that basically where Florida salted the game away. For Georgia by having you know a seven minute drive in the fourth quarter, same thing against LSU getting stopped on fourth down down at the goal line with like a minute left, where essentially the game was already out of reach. And that's maybe the next step for the Florida offense to take is being able to be more explosive in situations where the defense knows that you have to throw the ball and knows that you're going to have to take some deep shots. And you know the way the offense is designed is you take what the defense gives you. Well, you know that can be problematic if you're down by a couple of touchdowns in the fourth quarter. So. You know, but again, it's you do what you do with your personnel. If you got Percy Harvin out there, you just tell him run deep and you chuck it. You know, that's not necessarily something you can do with the guys that they've had there. Not that those guys are bad, they're just not Percy Harvin. And let's be honest, not a lot of people are.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, one more here. Uh, Drives per game and, uh, well, I put this one in here because I think it's kind of a, a, a team aspect. It's offense and defense here. For me, to me, you know, drives per game, this is one that can really depend on your defense, getting you the ball back, creating turnovers. Uh, the Gators didn't fare too well here as they were ninth in the SEC with 11.6 drives per game. Auburn led the way with 13.2. Um, so 2018, you know, another metric where the Gators are right in the middle, just like they were in the other metrics in 2018 uh, of the conference at seventh with 12.25 drives per game. So the Gators almost had one more drive per game average in 2018 than in 2019. That's why I think, you know, your defense plays a part in this, uh, too. Your 2018 defense played a part in, in getting the offense, you know, the ball more often and creating turnovers
1: absolutely well and you know the the 2009 defense at least at times had issues getting off the field (laughs) yeah right i mean you know when you think about the number of offensive opportunities that florida had against georgia i mean certainly they squandered some things they drove into georgia territory quite a few times and then got stalled Mm -hmm. by sacks or penalties or or what have you but um at the same time they didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to drive into enemy territory because georgia kept converting third downs so you know yeah it's a big part of it and and you know We always talk about it being offense, defense, and special teams. And, you know, Grantham has brought the defense up to basically a top 20 unit. Mullen has brought the offense up to a top 20 unit. Top 20 is not probably going to be good enough to get over those Georgia and Alabama humps. Um, But 2020 is a time where you might have an opportunity because, like Stephen mentioned, Georgia is going to be missing quite a bit of their offense coming back. LSU had, what, like 17 guys go to the Mm -hmm. combine? So there are some opportunities here for Florida to take advantage here in 2020.
0: Two more metrics I'll use to show success in controlling games. In 2019, uh, the Gators were fourth in the SEC in first downs per drive with 1.56 and was second in the SEC, only behind Alabama in three and outs with only 27 on the year. Uh, That put them third in the SEC behind LSU and Alabama in three and outs percentage with only 17.8% of Florida's drives going three and out. Even with no run game, the Gators' offense was able to stay on the field. 2018, 1.53 first downs per drive was almost exactly the same as 2019's 1.56. But while second in the SEC in 2019, that stat only came in at sixth in 2018. The Gators had 28 three and outs in 2018, so only one more than in 2019, but 2% higher going three and out compared to the 2019 team.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of that is is predicated on what Stephen was talking about with their ability to to sort of set the chains on first down, and and um, you know that that obviously has been an issue at times for Florida with the offensive line over the last two years. So that's really the area where I think the strategy he was talking about in terms of controlling the ball really maybe is going to start to show itself um at florida over the next couple of years as those offensive linemen come in get more comfortable in the system and are able to start um start really giving that advantage that he had at mississippi state but this time with better skilled players on the outside
0: yeah well so yeah yeah all that being said you know steven's piece showed you know how mullen controlled the ball and, and was at the top of the sec uh in the country in doing so and, and that was you know once he got his players uh, in his system there so as Steven said, you know we've 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 yet to see Mullen with just his players at Florida. It'll be a couple seasons before we see that. But uh, what a great start in in taking his system, and as you said too, you know, adapting it and and still producing pretty good results of uh, of controlling ball games so far in these two years of Florida.
1: Absolutely, I mean, you know, you look at where they you look at where Florida's come from two thousand six and two thousand or two thousand sixteen and two thousand seventeen, and I mean they couldn't throw the ball at all. And even in 2018, they struggled. I think Felipe Frank was something like 70th in yards per attempt. And last year, Trask was 23rd in the country. He was something like 26th in the country in, in passer rating. Um, so, you know, again, like you've got a quarterback who's playing at a top 20 level. The question is, can he jump higher than that? But at the same time, I'm not going to turn up my nose at a quarterback who's playing at a top 20 level, considering that I'm not sure we've had a quarterback who's been um, – Who's been considered even above average since Tim Tebow left Gainesville? I mean, you could maybe say Will Greer, but even that—you go back and look at Greer, and the potential was there. Mm-hmm. But at Florida in the first five or six games, the statistics—you know—the the Tennessee game he sort of turned a corner, but the statistics are more indicative of a guy who was still learning, and then was able to really apply that learning when he got to West Virginia. Um, you know, hopefully that's the same situation with Trask, where last year was sort of you know his representation of what Greer's first season would have been at Florida he hadn't have been suspended and then we get West Virginia Kyle Trask for the <laughs> for the 2020 <laughs> year.
0: Oh man. Yeah. So uh Will that that kinda does take us to our next point here and you stirred the Hornets Nest uh with uh you know basically you know you're defending why Kyle Trask you know should be the the, the starting quarterback and, you know why you, your article was titled Why are fans trying to push aside the best gator QB since Tim Tebow and Oh, man. Uh, I've I've tried as hard as I could to stay away from the QB debate. Uh, I, I joked on Twitter, you know, social distancing gives me a lot more time. So I decided to dive into the QB debate. And, you know, nobody is calling Kyle Trask elite. That's one thing I think, if you're a defender of Kyle Trask, I think that's one thing the, the other side of it kind of says is, oh, you know, to you know to beat Georgia to be all those other teams you got to be elite. Well, I mean, maybe. We we'll, we'll see. We'll see what 2020 brings. But, you know, in, in defense of Kyle Trask, I don't I'm not I'm not calling him elite. I'm not labeling labeling him elite, but I do think he is the best option for the uh, 2020 season whenever that happens.
1: Well, I mean, we'll see if it happens in 2021 that might not be true, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the uh you know, here's the reality. Like when you go and look at the statistics and you look at so I SEC StatCat has a great breakdown where you can really sort of slice and dice the data. And and you look at it, and behind the line of scrimmage, Trask was inaccurate 7% of the time. From 0 to 10 yards, he was inaccurate 29% of the time. Went up to 41%, 11 to 20 yards, and then 36% at – I'm sorry, 72% at 20-plus yards. So he was pretty inaccurate. Deep throws, but a lot of quarterbacks are inaccurate on deep throws. And when you look at Emory Jones and his inaccuracy, inaccuracy percentage, and you know, granted, only 38 attempts this year, but he was more inaccurate at each of those depths, and particularly inaccurate at that zero to 10 yard depth, which is where a lot of Mullins sort of first down control the, you know, control the drive, all that sort of stuff lies. And you know, it's not Jones's fault. He's got less experience in the offense, less experience in practice. And Trask has come in and shown that he's got the ability to complete, the basically, that he's able to move Florida down the field effectively, um, at least in his first year. And the question I wanted to ask, so maybe a month or two, hey, about a month ago, I looked at a comparison of Trask and Burrow and sort of came away from it thinking, eh, Trask doesn't really have that far to grow because you know he can't make the leap that Burrow made because his completion percentage was so much higher. But I started looking at his throws by depth, and I started looking at offensive line And LSU's offensive line in 2018 was very, very similar to Florida's offensive line in 2019 when you looked at the running games. So Burrow didn't have much help with the running game. However, he had a little bit more time on second and 10 and third and 10 plus situations. So he averaged 2.38 seconds in those situations and Trask averaged 2.28 seconds in those situations. So less time to throw the ball, but Trask averaged eight and a half yards an attempt and completed 71% of his throws, whereas Burrow in 2018 averaged 5.2 yards per attempt and completed 57% of his throws. Well, LSU's offensive line got way better in 2019. And all of a sudden, Burrow was completing, you know, 70 or 80% of his throws for 9.7 yards per attempt, but he had 2.6 seconds to throw the ball. And so one of the things I think is really impressive is Trask completed 71% of his throws for eight and a half yards of throw when he had less time than Burrow did two years ago. And, and I think that really bodes well if the offensive line can improve, give him a little bit more time, you know, people have looked at, and even I've looked at, his success rates going down the field and they're okay, but they're not fantastic. Mm -hmm. And everybody goes, well, he doesn't have a strong arm. So he's going to, he's going to always struggle to throw the ball downfield. But Mm -hmm. I'm convinced if you give him two or three extra tenths of a second, that the guy's going to be able to come open and he's going to get the right read. And so I think really, when we talk about, when we talk about Trask's ability to throw the ball down the field and drive the ball down the field, a lot of that is going to be predicated on the offensive line, being able to keep him clean in the same way that, LSU's line was able to keep Burrow clean.
0: I think that is the question, is how much of a step does he take if everything around him is better, if the run game's better, if the offensive line's better? How much does that help him? Is he status quo and those other things around him improve, and that makes the whole offense elite? Or is it him making that jump to elite if the offensive line doesn't come around? If the, the running game doesn't come around, can he turn it into elite without the help of the, the, the other pieces of the offense?
1: Well, look, I mean, if, a, if Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had not played well last year behind an improved offensive line for LSU, Joe Burrow would have looked a lot worse right? I mean, Burrow obviously was otherworldly in terms of the numbers that he put up and, and his ability to change the game. At the same time, everybody around him got better. Now, part of that is that Burrow was getting them in the right play. Part of that is everyone improved during the offseason. Um, part of that is, is that, you know, Texas wasn't as good as everybody thought coming into the year. But LSU played a legit schedule, so I mean, I don't think we can yeah. say it was level of competition. I think what it really boils down to is a quarterback in his second full year And the SEC, who's already pretty good at reading defenses, things are going to start to slow down. And you can even see that going towards the end of the year. So, you know, the the game against Auburn, there were four sacks. There were fumbles all over the place. And, you know, Trask acquitted himself decently in that game. But at the same time, we came out of that game and the Tennessee game that was the second game of the year going, wow, he really needs to get that internal clock where he Mm -hmm. knows he's going to get drilled because he's going to he's going to cause some turnovers that are going to change games later on in the year. And sure enough, when's the last time you remember Trask fumbling the ball? Uh, He was much more adept at getting the ball out. He was much more adept at sort of having that internal clock, knowing he was going to get hit and getting rid of it. And like I said, it's not as if he had a whole lot of time to make that decision.
0: Well, and that came after he got hurt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, part of that was that he he couldn't rely on his legs anymore because right? yeah. <laughs> he couldn't move, um, which which probably had something to do with it. But, um, you know, the the reality is, is that if you've got a running quarterback and a throwing quarterback and, you know, one is really good at throwing and one is really good at running, I think you almost always want to default with the throwing quarterback. In fact, mm-hmm. I went back and looked at it and the number of points you score for every yard that you get on an attempt through the passing game versus every yard you get on an attempt through the running game is it's like you get 2.1 times as many points. So being able to chuck the ball through the air is far more important than being able to run the ball. Now, if you've got a guy who can do both, that gives you a real advantage. And that's what Mullen took care, took advantage of when he had Dak Prescott at Mississippi state. It's what he took advantage of when he had Tim Tebow. Um, But you know, if we go back and look at it, Tebow in 2006, they had the Leak and Tebow combination. At the same time, the question then going into 2007 was, well, can Tebow actually throw the ball? Well, it turns out Tebow can throw the ball, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like He went out in 2007 at one of the best seasons we've ever seen. And so the, the fact that Tebow was in the game, I'm sure, had a lot to do with what he had shown in practice. And you know, maybe he didn't have a complete grasp of the offense, but he was a special – he was a special sort of character just because of the way he could run the ball. But then you factor in the fact that he could fake it and throw that ball to Lewis Murphy on, on the slant against LSU or that he could throw the jump pass and those sorts of things. And, you know, Emory Jones has come in and they've basically let him run the ball. Um, and, and I suspect that the reins have been on there because he hasn't necessarily shown the same things that Tim Tebow did in practice. Now that doesn't mean Emory Jones won't get to the point where he can do that. But I do think we need to acknowledge that, that, Kyle Trask not only won the job last year, won the backup job, but he—it's not like he won it, you know. Bef- I mean, he—he he was the guy coming in second in mop-up duty against the cupcakes before they got to the Kentucky game. Then they get to the Kentucky game, and he comes in when tra- when when mm-hmm. Franks gets hurt. And then Emory, they sort of had a little bit of a dual system going. I mean, there were a couple of times where Emory Jones got full drives. I mean, against LSU, he got a full drive. And by the time they got to the end of the year, they would scrapped that, mm-hmm. right? Like, Emory Jones was in to be a change of pace running quarterback, and he was no longer getting full series to, to prove what he could do. And I think that says something about how Trask was able to not only win the job, but then perform on the field and also perform in practice.
0: All right, everybody. So you can go to readinreaction.com uh, to catch Will's latest there and uh, you know, a really in depth look at Caltras, what he did last year, uh, you know, why he probably should be the starter uh, moving forward there. So, Will, man, that was that was a, that was a good piece. But uh, start a hornet's nest.
1: Well, that's that's the idea, man. We got <laughs> we got we got to get people distracted from all the stuff that's going on in the real world by give, by giving them ridiculous stuff to argue about.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, Will, anything else, man?
1: No, man. Just hopefully everybody's staying safe out there. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's actually been relatively quiet on the, yeah. uh, uh, on the, I mean, obviously there aren't sports actually going on, but, uh, you know, it's, it's good to hear that we've, we've had some things recently with sort of leveling of the curve, but then also, you know, Major League Baseball's in talks about getting back to work a little bit and the NBA's in talks about doing that too. So it's nice to see that the sports world's starting to pick up and there's at least some hope that when fall comes around, um, you know, things will be at least re- somewhat back to normal, maybe a new normal. But, but, but hope, but there's some hope that maybe we can have some football in the fall, or you know, it's a big enough revenue sport that maybe they'll maybe they'll decide to kick off in January. It'll be opening day on New Year's Day, man.
0: Man, well, I tell you, there's something that has you know really. Got my mind thinking about you know, college football whether it's w- when it starts, you know I don't think it starts on time. I, I do think I've said it last week with, with Matt White I do think there's a season. I, I think it's delayed in some sort um, I think they really want fans at the game that really drives college football I think they're gonna try every way possible to try and get fans at the game So I think that's why we get a delayed start but well if if a season starts in January or February, something like that. If, if, if football becomes a spring sport for the 2020 season, you move it to the spring of 2021, winter, spring of 2021. What happens to guys who are first, almost shoe-ins for a first round pick, second round pick? Uh, do they go, does Trevor Lawrence even play? Does Trevor Lawrence go out there for Clemson and even risk going out there and playing a month, two months, you know, uh, three months before the NFL draft comes out? I think it's, I mean, we could really see college football turned upside down if it starts playing in January. Well, I think it's very interesting. You know, does Kyle Pitts go out there and play for Florida? Does Marco Wilson go out there and play for Florida? I think it's very interesting. Those guys who should be getting ready for the NFL draft as soon as mid January comes around. You know, they're not at school anymore. They're supposed to go prepare for their their profession. I think that could really spin college football. If, if, if college football starts in 2021 for the 2020 season, it could be a wacky – I mean, when everything that's going on right now and then throw that wrench into it as well, it could be a wacky, wacky season in college football.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't. Right. right. If, I, if I was the guy – I mean, you know, Trevon Grimes is a great example. Right. So he's yeah. coming back for a senior year, and now things are being delayed and, and the question – but, again, I think it sort, of, it sort of goes back to what does the NFL do? Right. So if the NFL starts on time because they're willing to play in a bubble in Atlanta or something, and just every game is played, every game is played in the Superdome and the, and the new place in Atlanta, and, you know, and, you know, all the guys are sequestered, and they're not going to do that to college football. So, you know, if you're playing in empty stadiums and the NFL plays and they have the draft again next April, then yeah, I mean, people are going to have to make some decisions. But I think if college football gets delayed, chances are the NFL gets delayed too and the NFL has a vested interest in having college football as essentially it's minor leagues. And, um, so I do, I do suspect that they're going to treat each other as partners when it comes to deciding what to do and how to do it. Um, certainly the way each entity pays for it likely will be slightly different, but, um, You know, the the reality is, is that if you can get live sports on TV right now, you could charge whatever you wanted (laughs) for it. And a bunch of people who are listening to this podcast would go and pay it. So, so, you know, I do think that there's going to be an opportunity here for – for for live sports to really um, maybe even enhance revenue in the current situation we're in with people not wanting to leave the house, and so it's going to be fascinating to see sort of what those what the risks are of 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 moving the season back, but also what the opportunities are, right? Because it you know it's sort of that game the the thing I'm thinking about. and This is obviously um, a less a less uh, extended period, but, you know, the game in 2001 where the Tennessee game got moved to the end of the year, obviously Gator fans have, uh, have jaded memories about that game, but at the same time it made the season unique. And it, and it, it, it's something that sticks in my mind when I think about the 2001 season. I mean, obviously I was there, I was on campus during, during 2001, but the fact that the game got moved to the end of the season, makes something special about it. I think maybe that's what we'll end up thinking about this year is, uh, you know, it's just sort of a unique blip in the uh, in the college football landscape. And, you know, same thing with all the major league strikes and NBA lockout mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff is 10 years from now, nobody's really going to remember. They'll just remember that Florida won the national championship if that's what ends up happening. <laughs> you know, even if the game's in March, like, we'll, we'll remember it. We'll still hang the banner. Um, you know, we'll just have to make sure UCF doesn't hang one too. <laughs>
0: Zing. There we go. There we go. That's Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at Will Miles, SEC, and his site, readandreaction.com. I'm the host of Gator's Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gator's Breakdown.